We've had a tremendous response to the podcast, Loyalist Paramilitary Gunrunner. Now, when I started that podcast with Frank, we got straight into his crimes and his prison experience. I expected to go back to his earlier years at the end, but we covered so much in that, we didn't have time to go back to his earlier years. Lots of people have commented about getting Frank back on. And I'm proud to say that my publishing company, Gadfly Press, out of all the podcast guests we've had on, we've now finally published a book from one of our podcast guests. And Frank's book is the first. And it's called, surprise, surprise, Loyalist Paramilitary Gunrunner. And in the description box below this video are links for Frank's stuff, including links for the book, Available worldwide on Amazon as Kindle and paperback. And soon the audiobook will be up again. So thank you very much for coming back on, Frank. And before we just go to your earlier years then, what has it been like since you've come on the podcast? Have you been looking at the comments? And has that affected anything that you've been doing? Well, to be perfectly honest, uh, I found some of them challenging, a little bit challenging. Uh, I don't think that some people would grasp the fact that I wasn't um, I wasn't here to put across a political point of view. I wasn't here to try and influence anybody uh, in that sense. Uh, if anything, I was trying to de- deter people from getting themselves into the same situations that I'd got myself into and... Uh, Certainly, the situation of avoiding going to prison—that's for sure. Um, but, but equally, it, it, uh, yeah, it did give me uh, quite a lot to think about. You know, <laughs> if nothing else, you know what I say today. If, <laughs> if nothing else, but um, no, it was. I think in the main, most people kind of took it for what it was. I, I was concerned. I didn't want people to think that you were endorsing what I was saying in any way. Uh, and I did try to point out that you were. You know, clearly doing a job. You were asking someone who'd been to prison, um, and I tried to be as honest as as I could. And clearly, some people would, would like to hear more, <laughs> uh, which I don't think is a good idea. Mm. And um, equally, as I say, if you don't uh, if you if you don't tell them everything, they don't think you're, you're sincere and you're quite what you are. And then if you do tell them everything, they go, well, who goes on camera and sells people everything? So I kind of just weighed it up and thought, you know what, some people will enjoy it and some people won't. Yeah, you can never please all the people all the time. The commenters do get quite crazy at times. But, you know, it's the comments and the subscribers that we do really appreciate. I read, you know, get up and breakfast out and start reading the comments and messages and stuff first thing in the morning. And I do appreciate all the support. And if you're not subscribed yet, little subscription box is down there on the right-hand side of this video. So, man, I've just been listening to all the audiobook chapters, so I've just completely gone over all of your um, earlier years again. Mm. And I really like the way you tell it in the audiobook. Mm. Like, it's like you're telling it me. It's, like, it's, it's really good. Mm. So growing up in Kentish Town, North London, what was that like? Um, <laughs> it was tough. It was tough, uh, but it was tough for everybody, you know, not for me individually. It wasn't like everybody else was prospering and uh, I was the poor kid in the street. I think we were all pretty poor 
And it was the days of big families. Mine wasn't a particularly big family, but there were some pretty sizable families. Um, and, and some of the reason for that, because it was quite a big Irish community and it tended to be three, four, you know, sometimes five brothers. So it wasn't a surprise that things were hard for people. Uh, and certainly my own family, even when I was an only child, it was still a struggle. Uh, clearly more of a struggle once I've got, you know, other siblings. But, uh, yeah, it was tough. It, it was tough. And, and I think in this day and age you're trying to explain to younger people who I've worked with over the years and they're not having it. They're just, no, sorry. You know, you did not go to school, you know, with uh, holes in your shoes, you know, with a bit of lino cut out <laughs> or a, a cornflakes box. They're not having it. They just say, no, come on, it's no way nineteen. In early seventies, you was doing that, but it, it, that's just the way it was. It was the way it was, and and tough kids as well. <laughs> I hasten to add some very tough kids, and um, the trouble was there were so many brothers. So even if you was brave enough to stand up to one, you tended to have to worry about the other two, three or four that followed behind them. So sometimes it was just best to put your hands up and go. I'm not a fighter, like you know. But. And your birth father left quite early. Yeah, I believe that was before I was about two. I think I was about two. And um, I did get another dad quite quite soon. Um, probably appreciating more now because I'm an adult and a bit a bit, um, a bit more mature. But uh, I, I kind of view it, well, look, you know, he met my mum. He, he inherited me. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Uh, and, and over the years, there you know, there was a bit of a strain. To be honest, there was. You know. So, what was your mum's background, and how did she actually meet your birth father? Do you know the history there? I believe she was born in Bristol. She somehow landed up in a remote village called I think it's in the Doomsday Book, called Bishop's Canning in Wiltshire. I think she was about eighteen, and she her and a friend cycled to London, you know, the, the bright lights of London. Uh, as far as I'm aware, she very much was in love with my original father. Uh, I'm not altogether sure whether he was with her. I'm not, that's not been made very clear to be quite honest. What I'll give him credit for is that when they realised it wasn't working, rather than confuse me, he did move out of London. He he moved to the Brighton area. Um, I did catch up with him eventually uh, when I was about forty. Things <laughs> yeah, about forty, and I and I was encouraged to go and see him by ironically the uh, the vicar in the prison. And uh, he said, "How do you feel about him?" And I said, "Well, it does concern me because I don't want him going to his grave f f feeling that I've." born him a grudge all those years, you know. I did go to see him and um, he had two sons. That's nice. I'm still in contact with one of them now. That's really nice. And um, invited him to London and said, look, you know, you've got two granddaughters and it'd be nice if you could meet them. We went on holiday that year, came back and there was a letter he passed away. Oh. So as sad as it was, I'm pleased that I at least got the opportunity to go and see him and say, listen, you know, uh, there's, there's no hard feelings between us. It's just life. It's just the way it is. You know. Was he ever aware of your gun running and prison time and all that? Uh, 
I suspected when I went to his house and um, I was invited to dinner that the family clearly knew of the past. Um, his, his wife did tentatively say, did I feel in any way that because I hadn't had my original father, that that was some kind of a, you know excuse for my wayward behaviour? And I certainly said no. None at all. I take full responsibility for that. No cop-outs there. No, none at all. None at all. And then you have a sibling, Debbie. Yeah, and when I got to seven, yeah, all of a sudden, uh, this uh, the sister came on the scene, uh, which, I, if I'm honest, I loved it. Absolutely loved it. You know, it was another member of the family. But times were hard. It was hard. I can remember my mother having three jobs and still doing what they used to call back then homework, you know, making things, trying to trying to earn money. Uh, my Donny, who was, you know, my new dad, uh, he, was, he was a practical man. He, he was very good with his hands. You know, he could, he could, I could, he used to fascinate me. He could strip a car down, take mm. a gearbox out and an engine. I couldn't work out how he could put it all back together, to be honest. But he couldn't write a letter. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he just could not write a letter. He, um, in fact, he would find it difficult to have gone out and worked in an office, that's for sure. Mm. But a practical man. And look, I'll say it now, a good man. I just, did, I just didn't appreciate it at the time. He had some very bad mental health problems. In, in fact, it sort of was eventually got identified as schizophrenia. And he used to scare the life out of me, quite frankly. He used to you know, mm. literally scare the life out of me. Uh, I don't think my sister ever experienced that. Um, and when I eventually got a brother, he certainly never experienced that, the, 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 that degree of fear, you know. And um, so I don't want to say anything that kind of besmirches his memory that my sister and my brother has, you know. Yeah, yeah. And if you've not watched Loyalist Paramilitary Gun Runner Part 1, that is the top link in the description box below this video if you want to catch up with Frank's prison experience and the level of criminal activity he got involved in. Guns, bombs, assassinations, some of his people he's associated with were involved in, and it gets really heavy, and it's the special branch, MI6, uh, they step in, and that's that's how it got terminated in the end. So, Sunday school then. <laughs> well, I'll tell you an incident of that before that. Um a group of us, gang of us, call it what you will, we were coming out from uh, Saturday morning pictures. And in those days, we used to have a big piece of wasteland, which used to be uh, a coal wolf. It was where the trains used to come from up north and in the Midlands, down to London. And it was quite a few uh, coal merchants where I live. In fact, one of them, um, his family, it, it were big coal merchants. Um, he, he, lives next, say he lives next door to me. So you'd have these vehicles come in, these trains come in, the lorries used to load up. But eventually that industry started to die out. But we loved it. We used to play over there, basically, build camps and all sorts. We also used to ambush the kids from Maitland Park as well after the pictures. <laughs> um, so they forgive me for now because I see some of them in the pub occasionally. Um, <laughs> but uh, we were coming home one day and uh, we, we passed this building. It was... a published printers type building and it was a crack in the window and one of the boys decided to kick the window and finish the job off like you know and uh, 
And in those days, you used to have comics about that big. And they used to be World War One or World War Two, maybe. Now, probably World War II. Uh, romance and Western, Western uh, comics. So we started to take handfuls of them. Right? And someone said, I oh, know, let's go up the market, which is called Queen's Crescent Market. We just call it the Crescent. And why don't we sell them? You know, we were, we, we thought we were, you know, we, we predated Del Boy, basically. You know, so I thought, oh no, all of a sudden my, you know, entrepreneurial brain kicked in. I thought, oh no, I'll go and get me mum's tin bath. We can fill it up, take it down the market, turn it over and use it as a stall. So this is what we do. So we're standing there. I'm, I've remembered all the things I can hear what the, <laughs> the stall holders shout at, you know. You know, come on, missus, I'm not asking for 50, Bob. I'm not asking for 30, Bob. I'm not even asking your uncle, Bob. Like, you <laughs> know. And all of a sudden, this big hand came on my shoulder. It was the local copper. Mm. Well, everyone else had fucked off. Mm. No one felt to tell me that the copper had turned up. So he asked who the, who, who's all the comics. So, so uh, I said, I don't know. You know I kind of <laughs> went really pathetic. <laughs> I went, I don't know. And he went, well, who's his the bath? And I thought, well, I can't disown my mum's bath. And uh, got marched home. And, of course, I got a clamp round the ear out, bringing the police to the door and so on, and you know. <laughs> and ironically, the following Sunday, I was sent to Sunday school. <laughs> so I'm not sure whether that was retribution for what I've done. I suspect later on in life, I thought, hold on. You know, when you get a bit older and you get a guilt rent or you get married, you want a bit of time for yourself, don't you? You know, so looking back on it, I suspect it was more to do with them two wanting a little bit of afternoon delight <laughs> than it was any strict religious, you know, reasons, you know. But I enjoyed it. I find it. I enjoyed it. I quite enjoyed it. You enjoyed Sunday school? I quite enjoyed it. Yeah, I quite enjoyed what it. What activity did they have you do? I don't know, but they had this star system. I don't think the stars got you any nearer to heaven necessarily. <laughs> but I, I seem to remember there was this, there were um, Saturn, you know, and Neptune and Mars, and and the and the, the better you did, you kind of worked your way round round this chart. Look, from our point of view, it was a biscuit and a glass of orange. So <laughs> it could have been a devil worshippers meeting if it was a glass of orange and a biscuit. You'd have took it, basically, you know. So. When was the football interest sparked? Well, I was football mad. There's no doubt about that. From Play, what age? Playing. From what oh, age? we just. It's probably hard for people to imagine now. Take into account there were less cars on the road, and there was a lot less to do. So we would literally play football from one side of the road to the other. You know, the walls, the gable walls were the goals. So you'd get a piece of chalk and you'd mark it up. And I can't believe so many kids used to just play, you know, 50 yards, a game of football in 50, in 50 yards. But we were all incredibly football mad, you know. And if you take into account, we take it for granted now because you can put the telly on, there's so many games of football. Well, back then there wasn't. In fact, it was like you've had a television, never, you know, I don't mind watching it on the television. So to see it and appreciate it, you had to go. To the, to the games. And I, I, if I'm honest, I can't even remember the first... I'm quite ashamed of it, really. I can't remember the first game I ever went to. Um, I can remember the first away game I went to. 
I can't actually remember the first home game, but it would have been the late, it would have been the late sixties. I'd have thought. I thought it would have been about the late sixties, and, and, and the bug just hit me. It was just the atmosphere that you know. It, I was completely uh, sold on it, um, and I think it was. I think I was fourteen. And I was at school, and my old man used to work for um, British Rail. Used to have another company, subsidiary company called Freightliners, and he was entitled to free tickets, train tickets, but you couldn't use them on the football special. Mm. So I'd have to get the train before the football specials, which wasn't ideal because when you got to that station, there was usually hundreds of skinheads waiting for you. And he, he was one of the few who got off that particular train, so that wasn't ideal. But I did. I went to Manchester. Oh, I went to Manchester. Typical Manchester weather, pouring down with rain. I was, yeah, I was fourteen. I was fourteen at the time, and I remember going into Woolworths to get out of the rain. And I swear, even the girls behind the, you know, the um, the counters, they seemed hostile. It was almost as if they knew I was a Cockney. You know, <laughs> I was from London. I did have a scarf on, by the way. I did have a, a, a navy and white scarf on. Got on the bus, went to what was then called, it was Main Road then, obviously Etihad Stadium now, but it was Main Road then. Went in the first turnstile. Big, big mistake. Walked up the stairs, went onto this big terraced uh, area. And uh, in those days, everybody used to, there was skinheads. And Manchester City fans used to wear Levi jackets, but bleached. So that it was the same colour as, you know, as their players' shirts. So it was sky blue. So they would bleach the jean jackets and the jeans to as sky blue as you could get. And then they had sky blue and white scarves on. Silly bollocks walks in with a navy blue, <laughs> white scarf on. You know, I was probably weighed about 10 stone seven. You know, I was this skinny little kid. I got so much abuse, it was unbelievable. And this song about hating Cockneys and so on. And this um, this copper come out of nowhere, punched this skinny, dragged me by the collar, took me down to the corner flag and made me stand with a bloke with his two kids. And we lost 4-0. <laughs> lost 4-0. I think I gave it 10 minutes towards the end and I thought, mm. oh, do you know what, I'm, I'm getting out of here. Got on a bus, got back to Piccadilly Station, and I suddenly got surrounded by these skinheads, and they wanted my scarf. And I thought, I can't go to school on Monday without my scarf. I just couldn't do it. And in those days, the shoes that were very popular uh, were like a loafer. They were called salacios. They had the tassels on the front. And they kept slipping. And I ran. I ran. Fortunately, I did run for my school at the time. So I ran. And they kept, I remember them sliding up and down at the back. And I got into the station. And eventually, uh, I, I come across about I don't know, a couple of dozen of these sort of Tottenham skinners, all older, you know, sort of 20 years of age. And uh, they, oh, you're right, mate. They said, you're okay. I said, oh, I've just been chased, like, you know, by these Man City supporters. These City supporters came into the station and they basically set about, and one of them got put through a plate glass uh, window. Uh, I think it was like a phone box. And uh, the police just wanted to get everybody on a train. So I was lucky. So I happened to go back on the football special with all these older blokes. So I go into school on Monday and everyone's like, oh, great, great. Like, you know, everyone forgot we'd lost 4 0 huh. 
it was just the fact that I'd met up with all these older skinheads. And the following week, a couple of mates come over to the to Tottenham. We walked past the pub. And of course, there's all these 20-year-old skinheads standing outside the pub. And as I walked past, they went, all right, Frank, how are you? <laughs> Got up in Manchester last week, wasn't it? <laughs> My mates are like, I'm an hero, aren't I? Yeah. How do you know them? I then give it the big and I was with them up in Manchester last week, wasn't I? Like, you know, <laughs> not, I was scared out of my wits. <laughs> you, know, you know, I sort of put this persona on that I was, uh, yeah, I'm one of the boys, you know. But come unstuck regularly because I, I actually started to believe I was one of the boys. <laughs> it didn't work. So you joked about your entrepreneurial skills earlier, but you did in fact get your hustle on as a teenager, had a few little jobs. To make money where you lived in those days, you you would do things like you either um, what would you you you'd, you'd pull the stalls out down the market, for example, down the Crescent. Everybody seemed to go through the paper boy stage, you know. You had a paper round, and um, that usually turned out to be the chap who used to do the papers. He'd go out the back. You'd have a bag with the papers. Oh, that's nice. I'll have a box of roses. I'll have a dirty magazine. You know, a bottle of Corona cream soda. All went in the bag. <laughs> and you, you went round the flats and sat on the steps and read the magazine and, you know, hit your chocolates. <coughs> and somewhere in between it, you, you, you delivered the papers, you know. Uh, we, we, we were quite fortunate, fortunate on the one hand, but they, they basically... Our community got ripped apart. They they pulled all these houses down. Perfectly good houses. Some of them are still standing now where I, where I live. They only had to put um, radiators in there and um, bulbs, you know, decent plumbing, and they were perfectly good houses. But they decided to pull all these out. About five or six streets they pulled down, which from our point of view was great because every time somebody moved out of a house, you went in and any excess furniture, any ornaments, you know, mantel clocks, that type of thing, we all took them down to Junkie John, down the Crescent, and got money for it. Uh, and then we started to, uh, we, we learned the value of lead, copper, you know, cast iron, brass. Um, and my old man used to take it down to our buckles down St Pancras Way, and we, we'd get money for it, you know. So we broke the suspension on his car because we overloaded it, and he wasn't very pleased. <laughs> but, but uh, yeah, we, all, we, we kind of learned ways of making money. Yeah, and apart from experiencing violence through the football, there was things going on on the streets, and you got this ambush of the kids from the Maitland Park estate. Oh no, we ambushed them. Yeah, you ambushed them. Oh, yeah. we definitely ambushed yeah. them. Yeah, <laughs> we still talk about that in the pub to this day. Yeah, we definitely used to ambush. Them. And how we and, and funny enough, how we never killed each other. I'm not really sure because. So we used to build camps on on the you know the, sort of the wasteland sort of thing, the waste ground, and you sat all night, you you know, protected them in case they came round and burnt it out, and like, you know. But we'd throw bricks at each other, we'd throw slates at each other. I, I'm really not sure how we didn't really do ourselves, you know, some really serious damage. But that was our entertainment. That's that's what it was all about. As I said in the book, we didn't have Game Boys in them days. You know, you didn't, <laughs> you didn't have that sort of thing. You went out and you made your own entertainment. So you went into a care home at 10. Your sister was three. Yeah. How did that come about? I think that was a case because my mother was genuinely ill. And 
I don't think the social services felt that my dad was capable. Mm. That may have had something to do with his mental health um, condition, you know. So they put us in this uh, in this home and um, they sent me to a school. And ironically, the school had a lot of deaf kids in it for some reason. I don't know what that was, but it was the, I think it was just the nearest school. But uh, I do remember one incident. As I say, my, my sister was only three and she she clearly didn't know what was going on. And one morning she was sobbing her heart out, you know, wanted to, wanted to say goodbye to me before I went to this school. And I remember, you had to call them aunties. You had to call these women aunties. And I remember saying, can I just say goodbye to my sister? And they wouldn't have it. I was, you know, what can you do as a 10-year-old? And I look back on it now, and I swear there were probably things that went on in that place that I just probably didn't realise. What is the place like? Is on. it just a house? Or? A big house, yeah, a very big house. You know, probably God knows how much it'd be worth on the on the market now. And um, and it's quite strange because I can still remember the number of the door. You know, I, was, I go by it. I've, I've driven by it every time I've driven by it as a, as, as a, you know as a grown man, and it, there's an horrible feeling comes over me about about that house. Mm. You know. I can remember things where a child would say, um, please, can I have some more bread and butter, please? And the aunties wouldn't give it because you'd said please twice. You had to either say, please, could I have a bit of bread and butter? Or can I have some bread and butter, please? You couldn't say please. And, and I think, come on, what was all... What was there's, clearly, there's clearly things that went on. I think they scarred me to a certain degree because there's something about when I go past... It sparks me off, and I think, hold on, probably just as well I don't remember. If I'm honest, it's probably just as well I don't remember. I'll probably go and burn it down if I did. To be honest, so, <laughs> there you are. Did you go back to your family then at some point? Yeah, I think an aunt looked after us for a while as well. It wasn't years. I mean, come on, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna, you know, over egg it. I'm not gonna exaggerate it. It might have been a couple of months, but it certainly, it certainly affected me. God knows what it did. I'm, I'm hoping my sister was so young that she doesn't really remember much about it. And we've had a discussion about it, to be quite honest. Just um, put it behind you. Yeah. So in school then, you said secondary school was quite tough, <laughs> but you had a fight that earned you a reputation. Yeah, in, in primary school, I was, uh, I, you know, I was, I, was, I was a bright kid, there's no doubt about it, but you wasn't getting, um, there weren't gangs then, was there? You know, it's primary school. Uh, and I don't, I done quite well. And bless her, my old mum, she sent me to a school called Sir William Collins because it had a sir in it. So she assumed it was posh. <laughs> it could not have been in the worst area. It's the area is called Summers Town, and it was notorious. I mean, it was notorious. There was a, there was a pub there called the Lord Summers, and the nickname was the Bucket of Blood because the governor used to come out in the morning with a mop and bucket. And mop the blood up, you know. And I remember when I was about fifteen, there was a Sunday, uh, Sunday magazine, and it had the five or six toughest streets in the UK. And the the street the school was in, Charlton Street, was one of the streets. It was mentioned. Charlton Street was mentioned. Really tough. Lots of lots of flats. It was an area where. Uh, obviously because of St Pancras, King's Cross uh, and Euston, you had really tough men who came to build the railways. So you had Irish, Scottish, Geordies, Scousers, 
and then tough Cockney fellas in the mix as well. Big families, um, and <laughs> you went in the first year, done really well. Second year, done really well, you know, academically. Um, then uh, if you fell out with someone, you was in trouble because, you know, there, was four, there were four or five brothers waiting for you after school and probably 10 cousins. Mm. Yeah, so I didn't necessarily try to get in with specific people. I, I definitely tried to avoid them <laughs> if, I, <laughs> if I could. Um, yeah, and I wasn't someone that went looking for trouble far from it. And if anything, I was probably the class clown. That was a kind of defensive mechanism, like, you know. And um, just out of the blue one day, we were in the um, changing room, you know, after doing uh, PE, physical education, and I had a pair of Tottenham football socks. We were that poor, I couldn't even afford the shorts and a shirt, so I had to be content with the socks. And for some reason, these kids got hold of the socks, you know, they were sort of tied up together in a bundle and started throwing them around. And it's stupid running around the dressing room, you know, or the changing room. And I lost the plot. And of all the kids to have have the socks in his in his hands was this one particular kid that everybody had a lot of respect for, had a lot of time for him. I don't think I ever see him have a fight, to be honest. It was one of those kids who didn't have to prove it by actually physically having a fight. It's always smart. If if people had um, a school blazer, his was a tailored jacket. If you was lucky to have you know have a pen and a pencil, he had a bag. He'd have a, um, what would they call it, you know, a typical um, ballpoint pen. Uh, I forget what they call them. Fountain pen. He'd have the lot. Basically, he had the full kit. Like, you know, he, had, he had the full Monty. And if you came back after a school holiday and people, the teacher went, oh, Frank, where have you been? Oh, we went to a caravan in Great Yarmouth. He'd been skiing. You know, so I suppose there was a little bit in me of like, you know, you flash git, like, you know what I mean? Well, he happened to land up with the with these socks. I went into blind rage. And all I can remember is, is having him on the floor with my hands around his neck. And he obviously let go of the socks. And then people pulled me off. And of course, he's going to kill me after school. That's, that, was, that was the bottom line. And I was advised by what few friends I had don't go out of you know. Don't go out the back gate. You know, don't just don't. He's going to kill you, like you know. And it it went on for the rest of the rest of the day. He's going to kill me. He's going to kill me. And school kids being school kids, everyone felt obliged to stay behind after school and watch me get beaten up. You know. <laughs> and I came out, and this and it was no bravado on my point on my part. I can assure you. And I just came out, and he was standing there, and I thought he's going to hit me. Let me just get on with it, sort of thing. And he stood there and he kept verbally threatening me. And I thought, hold on. He's not exactly got around to hitting me yet, has he? You know, and I thought, why don't I just take a chance? Why don't I just hit him? And I did. And he fell on the floor. <laughs> and, and, and I'm not sure who was more shocked, him, me, or all the audience. So I'm not really sure who was the most shocked. But it was crazy because he didn't even get up. He didn't threaten me in any way. And of course, when I went into school the next day, I was mis suddenly Mr. Popular. <laughs> I got invited to youth clubs. Oh, Frank, you know, someone's having a party on 
Saturday, would you like to come along? And for a few weeks, I did milk it, if I'm honest. <laughs> then you realise every lunatic in the school, no one's to take you on, don't they? Mm. So my reign as, you know, being Mr. Big didn't last very long. Mm. And, um, you know, I got battered a couple of times, basically. But it, it did at least say to me, well, you've stood up once. You know, why would you back ever? Why would you ever back down again? So, yeah, I kind of did learn uh, that, you know, there was something about me that I didn't realise that I had inside me, yeah. A philosophy that you applied later in your life in prison when you oh, became, certainly. became oh, the Baptist. Oh, most certainly, yes. Yeah. <laughs> the jug man. Yeah. <laughs> so you were interested in sports then and you did the triple jump. Yeah, and the 440 metres. And, and, and I've got to say this, uh, the, the power of, of teachers, you know, and what they can do for you which I clearly didn't appreciate at the time. And we had this new sports teacher and one day he said, right, I'm going to make you all run around the outside of the school. It's, it's, he knew roughly what the distance was. He said, I'm going to time you. Well, we all ran, you know, we ran around the first corner and went, oh, fuck it, we ain't running. Who do you think we are? You know? <laughs> and, uh, well, of course, he timed it. So he knew we hadn't run. He knew we'd just walked around at you know, our own pace. And he basically said to us, I don't care if we're all night. He said, you're running around that and doing a decent time. So in the end, you thought, oh, I think we better do it, get on with it. And once, you start, once you're in a race, you want to win it, don't you? You, you don't want to be last. So I am to come around the corner first. And this teacher said to me, he said, do you realise you're only so many seconds behind the kid who does the 440 metres for the school? I seriously was not interested. Seriously not interested. But then he started saying, oh, you know, we go and compete against other schools. And I thought, is this a way of getting out of maths? You know, is this a way of avoiding <laughs> chemistry? Kind of? And I thought, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll give it a go. And, and eventually I did. I was I was running with a school. And and then he and he asked me to have a go at doing the triple jump, the, you know, up, skip and jump. And I landed up representing the school with that. And by the time I'd gotten to the fourth year, he, he introduced me to um, to running uh, for, to the trials to run for London, and I landed up being the reserve for London. But then I left school, so I never. I'll Did never you lose learned. interest then in the academic side? No, it was more it was more a case because of the family that I had, and as I say, we weren't particularly well off, and I could see the strain on my parents. I could see it was really really difficult, uh, and I thought, you know what, I think I think I need to get out there and. and try and at least look after myself, at least take the strain off of them, but at least being in a position to, to look after myself. And uh, By what means were you going to do that? I wasn't entirely sure. There wasn't a master plan. But in those days, jobs were quite easy to come by, to be quite honest. I think people to this day will look back to the sort of 70s and you could you could leave a job on a Friday and, get, and have had yourself a new one by Monday. And there were there were jobs where young people could go and find work, you know. And bless her, my mum came up to school one night and uh, she sat in front of this teacher and he said, oh, well, you know, do you mind me asking who you are? And she said, uh, I'm Frankie's mum. And he went, Frankie you? And she said, Frankie Portonari. And he said, I've never met your son. And of course, as she did the rounds, none of these teachers had actually met me. Mm. So when she got home, I mean, to say she was annoyed, was it? An understatement, and I, in the end, I had to cough for it and go, "Mum, where do you think you're getting them chickies from?" 
and then shops every now and again. I was working in Jewers Butchers down Camden High Street. She didn't even she didn't know I'd left school. She didn't know I'd left school. Um, so yeah, there was a necessity to to do, and I regret you know I do. I regret it. I've mentioned it in the in the last, but I regret it big time. Regret it big time. Did you enjoy working in the butchers? No, I hated it. What was your job? I can remember separating fat. How do you do that? Just shopping. They, and, shopping. And they just, well, no, no they, you, I was no skilled butcher, that's for sure. Yeah, but it was just cleaning up after other people, scrubbing the blocks. You know, the blood off the off the blocks, going into freezing cold freezers. It's you know probably half past five, six o'clock in the morning. That that wasn't fun. But you thought you was an adult. You know, I was what fourteen and a half, fifteen. You just thought you was a man, didn't you? You thought you you was the same as all the other blokes that were there. I can't actually remember cutting a piece of meat. I think they might have had me scraping some meat, you know, of, of, what, of what they'd left on the bones, maybe. I think I made some beef burgers once in a machine. <laughs> that was it. That was about as skillful as, <laughs> as I've got, you know. And you met your wife at an unbelievably early age, didn't you? Oh, yeah, 15, yeah, 1972. How did that come about then? Well, she, there was her and four sisters, and um, she came past the football pitch one day. And I could just see she was different. I could just, I thought, this is not one of the local girls. Albeit she was one of the local girls. But I, I definitely felt there was something about her. And I thought, that's definitely a bit of me. That that's, I didn't think I had any chance. <laughs> no chance whatsoever. And and, and she says, apparently, I, uh, I, I casually said to her, almost like, you know, um, I don't really care whether you do or you don't. But if you fancy it, you know, if you want to come down my house and play records, because that was the big thing in those days, you know, a little record player, high fidelity record player, you know. And I, she, apparently she said, I, I said it quite coolly, like, you know, if you want to, like, it's up to you. Like, you know, I don't really care. And uh, she said, yeah, and I couldn't believe it. She <laughs> could not believe that this, you know, this really good looking girl, you know, I think my mates definitely didn't believe it. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I just, I just one day, you know, casually. Sort of, she swears blind. I never actually asked her out. I was good as told her we were going out. Um, but I can remember an incident, you know, where my mates came and you know banged on the door. I, I mentioned, I've, I've mentioned, you didn't have bells in them days. You know, you had a knocker, and they come and knock. That's why I say he knocked on the door. And it was, Frank, you're coming out, you know, football. That was our life, was football, playing football. Frank, you're coming out to play football. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Got a bird in here. And they called me a puff. <laughs> they called me a puff. Because if, if you're not going out to play football, you're, you've got to be a puff, ain't you? <laughs> and I'm thinking, and looking back, and I thought, you didn't really get that, fellas, did you? Like, I've got a girl in here, like, you know, where's your girls? You're the puffs, not me. <laughs> You know, but yeah, I remember that quite Ooh. vividly. Yeah, them calling me that. Yeah. And you changed job a few times in your teens. Yeah, because different jobs. It might, only, it might have only been a couple of quid difference, but then two quid was was a big difference in those days. And I got a job in. Um, someone offered me a job. A, a mate of mine had to go at the ball store. That was it. And his dad came and knocked on my door and said, "Listen, they've said they'll keep his job open." Will you go and do the job? And I said, yeah, of course. And I landed up in a warehouse for about three years. Wow. Um, 
I know the old entrepreneurial skills kicked in there because I think there wasn't a fiddle that I didn't know. <laughs> in fact, I probably invented most of them. What were the fiddles? It was basically yeah, to get stuck on the back of a of a of a van, you know, or lorries and so on. Yeah. And I, I, to this day, I believe that the the owners of the company it was a, it was a, a food importers and exporters. I actually believe they paid such low wages because they knew mm. that people were on, you know, had, had fiddles going. Yeah, and uh, and if they didn't, why would why would this bloke be standing for three years? Why would this teenager be standing his job for three years if he wasn't making enough money? And as I say, there were very few fiddles that I, I don't that I don't think I uh, had kind of invented. You know, how did it feel to gain a new brother at nineteen years old? Shock! I didn't think my mum and dad even slept together. I never wanted. <laughs> You know what I mean? They were so busy yeah. arguing with each other. Yeah. I didn't mean they ever got round to having sex, to be quite honest. Mm. Yeah, it was, a, it was a big shock. There's no doubt about that. And uh, oh, it was subtly put, uh, my old man Donnie said to me one day, um, oh, have you got a jacket you can borrow me? And I said, well, yeah, what do you want to borrow that for? But I oh, mean, your mother's getting married on Friday. Just like as casual as that, we're getting married on Friday. I didn't know they weren't married. I assumed they were married. And um, and then not long after that, I found out what I was getting married, obviously, because all of a sudden uh, this this brother came on the scene, like you know, um, yeah. But and it's a shame because nineteen years difference, so we haven't mm. really been like brothers, you know. We haven't, haven't grown up together, which is just, we keep in touch. It's only around a corner from me, which is nice. But yeah, it didn't it didn't actually feel like having a brother, to be honest. So your interest in football, your passion led to an early arrest. <laughs> well. <laughs> No, no, I got away with it quite, quite a long time, actually. Uh, I, I got away with it quite a lot. And, uh, yeah, and then one day, of course, you know, fate plays its part and uh, we were we were playing Arsenal and um, all their boys came up the road, like, you know, and um, shouting and singing. And, and, and as they passed the pub, it just kicked off big time. And um want of a better way of putting it, I, I, you know, I got stuck in like everybody else did, and um, all of a sudden I was nicked. I was nicked, and I got taken to um, Tottenham Police Station. Obviously, slung in a cell. After the game had finished, I got let out. I didn't know the score, and I happened to ask people as they what was the score, and Arsenal had beaten us five 0 and I got nicked again. <laughs> and I remember the cop taking me into the station, and it was the same desk sergeant. And he stood and he looked at me and went, I've had you once today already, haven't I? <laughs> and I went, yeah, mate, yeah, you have. And fair play to him. What he'd done is he put me in a cell for an hour, let all the crowd go. And he said, look, I think you're in enough trouble. You know? And uh, <laughs> he let me go. So it was just the one, the one charge. I thought, oh, God, can you imagine going home to your girlfriend and saying, I got nicked not once. Twice in the same day. And back then, I remember going to Lordship Magistrates Court in Tottenham and it was £25 fine, uh, which was a, not a lot, but it was enough. My mate got £50 because he'd had a previous, previous offence. And um, I got, it was quite some time before I got arrested again, but then it was sort of like a bit of a sequence not I seem to keep getting arrested, but by the same time, the police got to know you as well. So, you know. So in the book, then, there's quite a lot of crazy stories of football activity in this country and overseas. 
Mm. Any of those uh, stories you can describe? Some of my mates said to me, I think they were a little bit disappointed because I actually admitted that I got patched up. And I said, well, hold on, you can't, you know, if you're going to be honest, you've got, you got to tell it as it is. And there was an occasion when we played Arsenal and uh, we were fighting again and Arsenal had gone into our stadium, went into the same end and I shouldn't have done that. Me and a few other fellas kicked off again. The police broke it up, threw everybody out. I thought I was being smart. Uh, made out someone had hit me. You know, and a couple went, I've gone away, you go. Sort of. And I went to the toilet. Bad move, bad move. Because some of these Arsenal fellas had seen me go to the toilet. And the next thing I knew, I woke up in a cubicle, dazed, you know. And the uh, first thing I did was sort of make sure I had both my ears, you know. I thought, case one of them fancies a trophy or something, you know. Got up and didn't realise at the time I had concussion. Eventually, I had to call a uh, St. John's uh, ambulance fella, and they put me in an ambulance, took me to North Middlesex Hospital. And you don't realise how cruel you are because there was a, an Arsenal supporter in the uh, in the ambulance, and he was screaming in agony. And I remember saying to this fella, what's the matter with him? He said, oh, we think he's, he, he said, uh, we think he's, uh, he's, he, he might have appendicitis if we don't get him to there. You know, to the North Middlesex Hospital quick enough, he might die. I said, oh, fuck him. I can't believe I said that. You know, in this time, now, but you were, you were so bitter back then. I obviously didn't mean it that I clearly yeah, did. I clearly appreciate didn't. your honesty. But at the time, but at the time, it was the, that was the kind of mindset, you know, you thought, fuck him, he's Arsenal, isn't he? Like, you know, not, he, he wasn't another human being, but clearly he was, you know. I went to the hospital, I waited so long to see a doctor, and you know, I just got a cab and went home. I just, I just went home, like, you know. And I remember my wife now guilt written in saying, that's it, best your lot. You, you're, not, you're not going anymore, that's it now. And I knew the following week we was playing Manchester United away and you had to go. You could not not go. You know, you had to show, you had to show face. And um, the Friday night before, we went to see Chaz and Dave at the Dominion Tottenham Court Road. Me, two mates and the, and the three guilt rings. So we go in, we recognise one of the security staff, Colin, who goes, goes over Tottenham. So we're going to watch this Jazz and Dave. They're up there. I'm singing along. You know, I'm enjoying myself. All of a sudden, a bloke behind me went, here, mate. He said, I fucking paid to hear Jazz and Dave, not you. I thought, right. So I turned around. There was a group of them there. And I said, uh, listen, you miserable cunt. I said, that's what they want you to fucking do, join in and sing. You know, that's what it's all about. <laughs> well, by now, my wife's now was in my leg. They're like, you know. And one of my pals, he, he was a bit volatile, to say the least. So it gets to half time. I thought, you know what, go to the toilet. Calm yourself down. Well, as I come back, the lights are going down. I can see somebody has got someone up against the wall and they're punching them. And there's, there's obviously something going on in the audience as well. My mate's got this feather up against the wall. He, he told me, I was, he said, Frank, I wasn't having the geese to talk to you like that. So it's all kicked off. I run down, I join in. Security will turn up. This Colin turns up. He went, fuck me. He went, there's got to be a couple of thousand people here. He went, I'm on, only be you, mob. So he took us upstairs into the top circle. He took us up to the top circle. And there was two empty rows at the back he went now listen 
you can sing, dance, fucking beat yourselves up. He said, I couldn't care less, you know. So, uh, and afterwards, he, we, we said, oh, sorry about that, Cole, like, you know, he went, you're all right. And he asked us if he wanted to go backstage and, uh, and, and meet Chaz and Dave. So we get to this door, bloke on the door, you know. I don't think he had quite said, who do you know? But that was the insinuation, like, as it was said, which, you know. And, and and Dave just happened to look out. And I went, hello, son, how's it going? Dave, how's it going? Went, you do that to anyone, they're not going to be rude, are they? So they invited us in. We had a drink with a Raquel. <laughs> of course, on the way out, I couldn't resist it. I said to the fellow, by the way, mate, so never fucking seen him before in my life. <laughs> and my missus went, oh, did you have to say? Anyway, I did go, because we had a good night. I did talk her around and I did happen to get to Old Trafford the next day. I got away with it. But, um, but uh, yeah. And what was the craziest stuff that happened at these overseas games? Oh, don't, don't. Uh, I should imagine the, the maddest one I can remember. I mean, there was lots of fights, lots of, you know, I mean, we, I think England fans had a bad reputation, you know, and a well-deserved bad reputation, by the way. And the trouble is, once you're involved in it, there's an expectation you've got to be there. Because you know if a certain group of you are going, everyone else will go. So we went to... we. Uh, we sorted our own coach out and we went to Munich. I'm trying to work this out. Was it Munich or Frankfurt? But we stopped off in Cologne. Whatever happened, we stopped off in Cologne and we split up 12 in one bar, one at you know, 12 in another bar. So we walk in and there's a woman in charge. She's behind the, she's behind the bar and she says, don't drink this beer, this lager, very strong German lager. It's a challenge, isn't it? 12 pints of that, 12 pints of that, love, 12 pints of that, you know, mm. strong lager there. So we're knocking this, we're knocking this lager back anyway. So. And there's about three or four birds sitting in the corner. My mate went up to get a box of matches. Or remember the old penny book match you used to get? It was just a piece of cardboard with matches in it. And I noticed one of these women looked up. And I've been talking to a Dutch lorry driver called Peter. And I saw, I see them. I went, what's all that about? And he went, oh, he said, you know, in London, he said, you're Soho. He said, and King's Cross. I said, oh, they're brasses. He went, yes, prostitutes, he said. I said, oh. So a bit more time's gone by, we're having a drink, have a bit more drink. And I thought I'd have a bit of mischief here. So I went over to the jukebox. And our old five-pence pieces were the same size as a German mark. So I'm looking on the thing. Got it. Olivia Newton, John, let's get physical. So I've put this on two or three times. Well, of course, the silly mates are all pissed now. Aren't they? Don't forget, we've been drinking all the way on this coach as well. So you only needed a couple of pints of this German lager to top you up. They're all up dancing, aren't they now? Got the attention of the birds, aren't they? Now they start having a trade up, don't they? So one after the other, the boys are paying their money. They had a flat across the road. These girls had a flat across the road, so they're all creeping off of them. All of a sudden, I thought, oh, I've got to go to the cars. My stomach was playing me up. So I go out to the toilet. There's no toilet roll, is there? Mm-hmm. I'm now having to come back and trying to explain to this German woman, do I need a toilet roll? I don't speak German, do I? Her English is decent. So I use hand signals. So I use me hand to point round that I need a toilet roll. She screams like a lunatic. She thinks I want to do her up the bottle, doesn't she? <laughs> so, she shouts whatever she shouts out in German. 
<laughs> all of a sudden, these big German fellas come running around from the other bar. What's left of my mates jump up, picking the glasses up, picking stalls up. It's going to be World War Three, isn't it? You know. He's sitting there laughing, the Dutch fella. He thinks it's hilarious. So I say, what's happening, paper fucks? Eh? I said, what are you laughing about? He says, she thinks you want to... No, I'm going, no, I'm going to her. No, 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 no. <laughs> so he explains it to her. She starts laughing. And it's, it's all over. She gets me a toilet roll. I'm happy. And fair play to the, the woman. She got us all the drink as well. She did get us all the drink. That could have very, very nasty, to be quite honest. Yeah. Was there a moment that did turn very nasty in the mix of this football violence for you? Oh, I remember going to Rotterdam and uh, Final had quite a, a nasty reputation and we knew where, where their, we'd call in those days their end, you know, their popular end where their equivalent of us would stand and they certainly had a, a reputation for knives and so In fact, prior to the game, this must have been about 80, might have been 84, I mean, and they actually found a bomb in um, a left, not a left luggage thing, like you know, where you store your bags in the main station, ready to use against us. That's that crazy. These 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 Dutch were these final fans, and we got it into our heads that we're going in their end. We're going to go in their end, and and we did. And I remember I had, a, I had an umbrella. So when it kicked, when it all kicked off, I'm like John Steed, and I, you know. Um, I'm like the Avengers. I'm like this, you know. I'm winning, and I think it's great. No one's coming near me. All of a sudden, this bloke's come flying. One's got an axe, and one's got a sword. That's it, a football match. And uh, I just thought, "Fuck that!" <laughs> and I've never seen so many tools pulled. The knives just came out everywhere, and there was a there was a surge, and it pushed us all down. It's, it's, it's on YouTube. You can see it quite clearly. You can see one bloke stabbing someone in the back. The video of, is on YouTube. It's of on this. YouTube. Yeah, Do you know of, what it's of, called? Of People are going to look, of, look for this. Of that particular, of that particular incident, and and because of, there were so many of them, it pushed us down to the front, and we had to get onto the pitch. What people didn't realise was where they thought they was punt, getting punched in the side and getting punched. They were actually being stabbed, oh. and more than one of my mates got stabbed. Um, <sighs> I've never seen anything. I've never seen anything as as bad as that. And outside, it was just pure mayhem. A mate of ours had gone missing. We knew he'd been stabbed. And we went round to the local hospital to try and pick him up. And you walked in this hospital, and there was a corridor, and there was beds. And we were trolleys. They were trolleys. And there was final fans one side, and there were Tottenham fans the other side. And we saw our mate at the end of the corridor and shouted. I won't say his name. I don't want to embarrass him, but... We shouted at with Jimmy, was called Jimmy. We shouted out to him, Jimmy, come on, mate, and all that. He got off of his trolley, and as he ran up the corridor passing the final fans, he was stabbing them. And I thought, hold on, hold on, we're going to get seriously banged up here. So we went out to the hospital. Some of us dived in a bar, and the others stuck him on, a, on a, just an ordinary Tottenham supporters coach just to get him out of the way, you know. But yeah, that's the worst I've ever seen. That's definitely the worst I've ever seen. What was the worst injury you ever sustained? It was that. It, well, it was that game against. That was that game against Arsenal where I landed up concussion. We're very lucky. That was the worst. Yeah. We're very. I've never touched. 
touch wood, you know, I've never, I've never been stabbed. Um, I did have an incident once in the old uh, in, in Camden Town, the old music machine. I said so many names, I'm losing track. It used to be called the Music Machine. Then it was the Camden Palace. I think now it's called Coco's. A few of us was in there. One, all Tottenham, all local Tottenham fellas. Someone said the little Ivory mob were upstairs. They was all Arsenal. And I was a little bit too keen. Ran up the stairs. And I'll say this to young fellas now. Don't ever run around a blind corner because you don't know what's waiting for you. And I, I ran around the corner and this fellow, remember the old pint glasses, the dimpled pint glasses, really heavy duty. And as I ran around this corner, this fellow went, wallop, right on my jaw. And I went down like a sack of spuds. Then they all came charging down the stairs. They were sort of stampeded over me. And I got up. The only advantage I had then was, was when I got, by the time I got down the stairs, they all had their back to me. So I kind of steamed in. But the next morning, it felt like, I said in the book, it felt like a ventriloquist dummy in my jaw. I just felt like it was hanging off. You know, but fortunately, it, it wasn't. But that was probably the worst, the worst injury I've ever had. Thankfully, it wasn't a broken jaw. Yeah. Did any of your crew get killed? No, remarkably not. No, considering the, the considering the level of violence at at some of them football matches, uh, someone I casually knew got shot and, and dead when when Tottenham played in the final out and against Standerlecht, and we were in Brussels, and it all kicked off in a bar. And uh, whether it was the governor of the pub or a barman, I can't remember now, but he shot one of our lot. With, with, I think it was a shotgun. Just killed him right there. Just killed him that one, yeah. Yeah, just killed him right there. And then just down the road, there was um, like a hardware shop. And it was like a swarm of locusts to hit this shop because all the shovels, brooms, pickaxe handles just got taken out of this shop and off the front of this shop. And it was absolute mayhem. But no, thankfully, I've not lost. I've not lost a, a, a good mate, you know. Was the risk of injury part of the attraction? Oh, yeah. Yeah, without, without a doubt. Especially the young, when you were younger, because if you went up north in those days, you know, they were tough places. So, you know, you, you went to Manchester, Liverpool, Newcastle, Sunderland, Middlesbrough. They were tough, in, you know, industrial cities with hard, with hard people. And... As far as they were concerned, we were southern softies. You know, we were flash cockney cunts as far as they was concerned. We all thought they was mugs. Um, they clearly had the advantage because they was at home and there was so many of them. And sometimes the minute you, you, know, you get off of a train and you, you, you left the station, there was just hundreds of people. Um, so to get home safely was, yeah, was, sometimes was a, bit of a, was a bit of an achievement. And people would say, God, you never went to Newcastle last week, did you? Yeah, of course I did. Of course I went, you know. And it, well, yeah, it was a bit of a, a badge on it. And I'm sure for them as well, I'm sure, you know, when they used to come down to London, that it, there, were, there was probably that buzz as well that you'd, you'd gone, survived, and got back home again in one piece. What was the most fun part and dangerous part before the match, the match, or after? Well, certainly in the early 70s, football was seven days a week. No sooner the game, one game was over, you was planning on what you were going to do the next week. Everywhere you went, any pub you, you know, you had, it was where I lived, there was the Mitre, that was the Tottenham pub. The Oak was the Arsenal pub. You didn't go in that pub. 
you know, there were places you would, if you went down, you went to the Lyceum or somewhere like that, you knew it was going to kick off because West Ham would be in there, Millwall would be in there, Chelsea would be in there. So it was a seven-day-a-week existence. That's all. There's someone at the moment, I will mention him because he, he has sort of coined, uh, coined the phrase. There's, there's, a, there's a, one of the Chelsea boys, he's, he's, he's written a book and he's recently appeared on a podcast as well. Um, Just the foot and, soldier. And uh, no, no, no. Um, I'll think of his name in a minute. I don't know why I can't think of his name. Uh, Jason Mariner. And he, he he's probably the first person I, I know who described it as a drug. And I think he rightly says that if you're if you're a drug addict, you can go and get treatment. If you've got a gambling problem, addiction, you can go and get treatment. But if you're a football hooligan, there's no treatment, is there? You're just a, you're just a fug. You're just a football hooligan. But I don't think people used to appreciate what a drug it was. You, it was definitely an adrenaline rush that you got going to football. I think that's whether you actually went just to watch a game. I think the atmosphere, the thrill of watching the game, seeing your heroes, that probably did give you a bit of an adrenaline rush. But nothing like meeting up that morning, plotting up what you was going to do, waiting for the other mob to turn up, or if you was going to wake up. No, I, I would honestly say there's nothing like it. Nothing like it. And very, very difficult to break. Very, very difficult to break. Because once you get that reputation as well, you start living up to it. You start living up to it. And um, even now, I'll sometimes feel a little, you know, I'll never get involved again. Never, ever get involved again. But I'll still recognise it. I still recognise it. So some people would say football hooligans are psychopaths. Some people would say tribalism has always existed, whether it's football, religion or whatever. Yep. Men have always yep. gathered and, yep. and Mods charged at each other. Mods and robbers. See, my old man used to say, oh, you're a fucking idiot. Who do you want to go fighting at football for? I went, oh, you weren't a rocket in. You never used to go down, you know, down to Sapman and Brighton and Clacton and fight with all, the, with all the mods. Oh, yeah, that was different, wasn't it? Oh, was it? No, it was a gang. <laughs> you know, where we lived, you know, um, youth clubs fought against other youth clubs. Different areas did go and fight against so different areas. So it always existed. Schools fought against schools. So the mentality was always still, that gang mentality was always there. Um, and the football thing was, was I suppose it was new, wasn't it? Because we'd heard, a, we'd heard our, our older friends, and in some cases even parents, who'd been part of the Mods and Rockers think Teddy Boys. You know, they were, you know, carry cutthroat razors and so on. So, so they were kind of saying to us, oh, no, it's stupid. We thought, well, hold on, you've had your fun and games. This is our time. We're going to have our fun and games. And all for that period, it was happening all the time. You had punks fighting with teddy boys. We used to go down to the music machine. We were just local fellas. You had punk night. If you went down there punk night, all the Teds would be waiting outside for them. You went down there on, you know, rockabilly night, the punks would be waiting outside. We didn't give a fuck. We bashed everybody up. We couldn't care less. <laughs> Soul night, we went down there. We bashed all them. We didn't care. It was mm-hmm. our manner, so to speak. We were quite a bit of fight anyone. But so it was always going on. It, I suppose it was just a case of w- which one did you, which culture did you identify with, and and decide to go with. You know, were you tooled up all the time, or did you feel the need on occasion to be tooled up? Personally, I never. 
and I, 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 I've never really approved that it's the, you know carrying knives. I never, I certainly didn't want to, want to kill anybody. Let's put it that way. That was never my intention. I think you give someone a right hand, you're entitled to get a right hand back. And invariably, what used to happen a lot, especially when it was you know hundreds onto hundreds, you'd punch someone, you get two punches from somebody else. You couldn't even see him. It was from behind or no. It was, the tall thing wasn't my wasn't my. I thought that was cowardly to be quite honest. And there's, and there's been some horrendous stories of where people have used knives. In fact, I hate to say it, there was one fella, I, I don't even know what club he was associated with, but they got hold of him and someone carved an S that was in his back or on his chest for spurs. And I thought, no, hold on, that's not... I don't I don't remember that being the rules of the game. Uh, I did use it, so I didn't actually use it on anybody, but we'd, um, we decided we wasn't going to go to a particular match. We was playing the... Queen's Park Rangers away and we fired, you know what, we can't be bothered to go over to Shepherd's Bush and we was all in the pub over Bethnal Green having a drink. But then one of our mad roofing mates decided to let off a CS canister in the pub. So we all had to come outside and we thought, well, fuck me, we can't go back in the pub now. So we saw a bloke down the road and he was, um, he was cleaning his van. So someone said, come, let's give him a couple of quid, ask him to drop us off at Shepherd's Bush. Arsenal was playing at home and we tried to get him to come back past Arsenal's grand, so we're going to ambush a few of them, but he wasn't having it. So we get the Shepherds bus, going on off licence, get a few cans of beer. We're walking down the road, dozen of us maybe, but we're in twos and threes. But didn't have a lot of respect for QPR, if I'm honest. Big mistake, silly mistake. Too blase. Got to this junction and, uh, I don't know, 10, 15 young black fellas come round the corner. We knew they was QPR. And all of a sudden, they pulled out all these tools. And uh, if I'm honest, I think we thought our reputation was good enough that we'd just go, go and fuck off. And, it, and, they, they, and they would. <laughs> Load more come round the corner. They weren't going anywhere. And uh, more luck than judgment, there was a skip. And some of the boys had, you know, half bricks and whatever. And there was a pile of sand. And uh, there was a shovel in, in the sand. So I picked the shovel up, run down the road at them, and I can remember um, the old desert boots had just made a bit of a comeback and they was all shouting, go on, Rommel, like Rommel of the <laughs> desert because of the sand, like, you know, in the desert boots. <laughs> go on, Rommel. And I ran down around. And, and I'm pleased I didn't actually hit anyone with a shovel because a, a couple come round on an horse and dispersed everybody and it, you know, it all sort of faded out. But if, I'd have, if it had come to it, I'd have had to have done because one of my pals got stabbed only a little bit in the arm. And, um, but no, I didn't actually... <laughs> so some of the young people watching this might not be familiar with old school football hooligan terminology mm. what was the Chelsea smile I'm not really sure about that because funny enough someone mentioned that the other day I don't know if it was on YouTube or I'd read it in a, in a, in a book I don't know whether that was to give the impression that you was going to get cut you know, you was going to get cut with something or what, maybe. Um, I always thought that was a Glasgow smile when I could, when I used to use, you know, razors. Stuff in the north. We we were hearing about the Chelsea smile. Yeah, Perhaps that was like a scurf thing that was um, coming up north. Yeah, I'm not, I mean, it, it used to be like, uh, what was the other thing? was like the Millwall brick, wasn't it? And that was where you just get a newspaper and double it over. And that's tough, isn't it? It's a piece of wood. Paper's made out of wood, isn't it? So, you know, it was... If you got it on the head without or around the jaw, you would have felt it. 
But yeah, I never really got to. I'd have to ask someone that. I'm not really sure what that was about, the Chelsea smile, to be honest. Have you watched Rise of the Foot Soldier? The yes, movie? I have, yeah. And was that an accurate yeah. portrayal of the hooliganism? I think the chap who was in it, yeah, Col Colton Leach, yeah, I'd um, you know, I'd, I'd give him credit where it's due. Yeah, he was a, he was he was a proper chap. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. No doubt about that. So, as well as the life journey into hooliganism, you started out in politics on one side and mm. then went over to the other side. Yeah. So let's yeah. let's. You actually became a young socialist, didn't you? Yeah, and I was about 16. I suppose I was about 16. And um, this group of young people came and knocked on the door one night, introduced themselves. They said they was a young socialist. Never had a clue. No knowledge of, of, of uh, politics whatsoever. That naive, all I knew was that Conservative was blue and uh, Labour was red. Uh, I vaguely knew my mum and dad would be Labour because... That's what working class was meant to be. Um, and these young people were talking about unemployment and uh, health education. And uh, and I thought, yeah, I can identify with that. You know, I'm clearly a middle, uh, a working class kid, and I? Albeit I didn't even know what a, work, a middle class one was. But but uh, where, where I do live is, is Camden. It's called Camden, the borough of Camden. But it wasn't always the borough of Camden. It was actually made up of three different boroughs. It was made up of Hampstead, which was affluent, Holborn, which was affluent, and stuck in the middle was St Pancras. Um, and that was clearly working class, very, very working class. And some genius thought, oh, I know, we'll form one borough. We're all equal, didn't we? Really? I don't remember, don't remember noticing the fucking change. I don't remember suddenly living in the big house up in Hampstead. You know, but anyway, it got changed. It got changed to Camden. And they invited me to a, a meeting, which wasn't that far away from where I lived. And I think so it was a Wednesday night. And to be honest, if Tottenham was playing that night, I wouldn't have gone. But mm -hmm. And I nearly never went. And I went along. And um, I walked in, and there were all these banners and things. And I thought, that's not YS. That's not Young Socialists. It was WRP which was Workers' Revolutionary Party. Oh, I don't remember being uh, subscribing to that. But what really struck me, none of these people looked like they was working class to me. I, I just discovered the middle class. And some of the words they were using, uh, like uh, laissez-faire capitalism, uh, the bourgeoisie, and, and I joked about it in a book and I thought, well, in this day and age, I probably think there was a couple of foreign footballers. But there weren't many about in them days, so no, they were, that, it wasn't them. And I thought, well, these ain't working class people. It's, I don't identify with, it, with these at all. Most of it went over my head, to be perfectly honest. But I persisted with these, with these young people because they were nice people and they seemed gen, you know, genuinely nice, idealistic people. You know. What I did notice during the course of this conversation, that they were, wasn't very flattering about the British Army, which I didn't quite get. And they started talking about Ireland. And I thought, well, what the fuck's that got to do with it? And where I lived, it was a very, very big Irish community in Camden. And and uh, I say in the book, my understanding of Irish people was they used to have some great fights outside their dance halls. Uh, and I only really identified them as getting in the back of Murphy's lorries, going to work. 
and they seem to own quite a lot of pubs. You know, that was it. That was my naive view of the world at, at 16. I mean, where politics come into it, I didn't know. I used to go into the houses of my mates. You know, I don't ever remember any, you know, anti-Englishness or, for that matter, any anti-Irishness. But maybe it's because I was just 16 and I was naive. So I, I started to go to quite a lot of meetings uh, and rallies. Still didn't quite get in the middle class bit. And... Oh, they organise a football match, tournament. That was it. Some genius had thought, oh, do you know what? We'll get him and his mates on the up. We'll organise a football tournament. My mates weren't convinced. No, oh, come on, what you want to get involved all that for? I said, oh, there's a cup. We all went over Acne Marshes for this this game of football. I said, oh, it was a disco afterwards. They were having a disco in Mile End, which was like enemy territory, West Ham. You do not go over the East End, you know, especially the age we were. And we go to the football match. <laughs> well... I say football, it was just fighting on the pitch. <laughs> Everyone was just fighting. They're West Ham, you know, we were top. Everyone was fighting each other. Somebody did eventually win the tournament. The organisers hadn't bought the cup. So that didn't go down well. So I tried to save the situation. Yeah. Come on, we still got the disco. We still got the disco. The disco was like a church hall or something with an old record player. That was it. No girls. There was no girls there. <laughs> and I think within about five, ten minutes, someone said there's a load of black fellas outside and they want to kill us. So they were a lot older than us as well. And uh, a mate broke into this kitchen area and he came back with these pathetic round edge knives. It wasn't, you, you couldn't have cut anything with them. But there was that bit of bravado. Oh, we've got knives. We've all got a knife now. Like, you know, I don't know what to do with it. And uh, anyway, by the time we charged, oh, you know, our street warriors, you know, our working class warriors, you know, clearly wasn't going to show any racial, racial solidarity with us, you know, and um, basically just left us to get on with it. And by the time we had a, we stormed out of this building, there was two two lines of, uh, of police waiting and they'd commandeered a bus, <laughs> a London bus, <laughs> slung us on this bus. And um, there we were going down Marlin Road, being chased by all these lunatics. And of course, once you got over whatever bridge it was back in, you know, was, you, you know, you spun it around. Oh, it was a liberty, wasn't it? We went over there on their manor and all that. Like, we, no, we were lucky to get out there alive. <laughs> and I think my mates made it perfectly clear after that. Frank, it's the football or the politics. We ain't having both. And I, and I just ditched it there, and then I just didn't go back again. You know, as well as the middle class thing, you heard that some were sympathising with the IRA, and that upset yeah, that's you. That's the it? bit I didn't. That's the bit I couldn't understand. I say that, and they were very derogatory about the British Army. And, and, and I suppose that was the first time that I, I kind of realised there was a sense of patriotism, if you want to call it nationalism, whatever. It, you know, I did kind of think it, it did ring a bell, and I thought, hold on. What's all, what's all that about? I don't like that. But I will stress, I was politically very naive. I clearly didn't know enough what was going on in the world. But eventually, I did look a lot closer. I did look into it a lot more, you know. So then you got in with the National Front. How yeah. did that happen? I was in a pub. I was in the Lord Summers pub and a fella came in. And I casually knew him. He worked down Smithfield Meat Market. I knew he, looked, he was a big fella. He knew a lot of people. And he came in one night and he had leaflets. Anyway, give me this leaflet. I suppose like most leaflets, 
put it in your back pocket. Don't ever expect to read it there. And he was quite he was quite a knowledgeable fella. We're still good friends to this day. And um I don't know if I read the leaflet when I got home, but I know some somewhere during the conversation he'd invited me to a meeting in, in a hotel in King's Cross. I think that's when I then went home. At some stage, I did read the leaflet, and it did strike a chord with me. And and that was very much on the patriotic side. I didn't I didn't really get the white thing, if I'm honest. I didn't really identify as being white. And I didn't really identify that I've got to dislike someone because they're black or they're not white. That that didn't really strike a call with me. Anyway, I went along to the meet. I went along to the meeting, and it was totally different. It was it was a total eye opener to me. The majority of these people were working class people, so I did kind of feel comfortable saying that. Saying that there was a mixture of football hooligans, skinheads, but there was also business people. I remember a solicitor being there. People I didn't necessarily expect to be there, judging what little I'd heard in the media. And don't forget, we haven't got the same mass media that we've got now. So, and probably back then, you only had probably three TV channels. Uh, You certainly didn't have social media. So what you read in the newspaper, you tended to believe. That, that was it. And I certainly wasn't led to believe that there was would be these type of people at that meeting. So I was intrigued. And not long after that, there was going to be uh, a demonstration or a march in Lewisham, which is infamous now. It's It, it was a very violent day. And suddenly mates at football started talking about going along and stewarding this March, and I said, "Well, you're not National Front. You're not. You're not even political. What you? Yeah, but it'd be good because it was going to kick off. There'd be a load of trouble. There'd be a load of violence." And I thought, you know what? I'm not doing that. I'm just. I'm not going to get involved. So I didn't. But I know plenty of people that did go. And you know, again, if you go on on onto YouTube, it was a very very violent day. Very violent day. Um, and it became sort of part of folklore. Whether you whether you were left wing, right wing. You know, it, 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 but of course, I saw it on the television, and I remember this older fella carrying a union flag, and all of a sudden, this black or Asian fella comes over and kicks him, gets him on the floor, and I was incensed. I was absolutely fuming, and I, I remember saying, "I wish I'd gone. I wish I'd gone." And I thought, "Who are these people to stop these people walking down these streets?" And what really done it for me? was because all of a sudden the news reporter described it as their community. And I thought, well, hold on, whose community was it before they came to this country? So I suppose I was now starting to see a difference between black and white, and that was probably the first time. But I still didn't bear any what I would have thought at the time were out-and-out racist views as as such. But I did recognise I was very nationalistic and I was very patriotic and so on. And I I did get involved and I did get involved. And uh, being typically me, you know, I wasn't content with just being a member. I was selling newspapers. I was putting up posters in election time. I was going on marches, going to meetings. And I invariably became the the organiser for Camden. But as I say, that's typical me. 
once I get involved with something, a bit like the football, it goes to extremes. And it was the bombings that made you want to get even more involved, wasn't it? Yeah, because London was getting bombed by the IRA. Uh, too young to really have appreciated the 1974 Birmingham pub bombings, but was aware of it. I did know that the, the post office tower uh, near Tottenham Court Road uh, had been had been bombed, had been blown up. Uh, so I had a little bit of more, there were more recollections than knowledge, shall we say. But then I did start to look into things. And then there would be pro, you know, Republican IRA, um, IRA parades. Okay, they dressed, they might have dressed up as troops out movement. Uh, the Irish freedom, freedom Movement called theirs the anti-internment parade. But we knew there was people that were on those parades. There was certainly, there was certainly Scottish Republican bands that were playing Irish tunes, let's put it that way. Um, and we started to to attack those and, 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 and meetings and so on. Um, and I've even come across the opposition, for want of a better way of putting it, acknowledging that I used to organise these, you know, the, these attacks. Um and got more and more involved and just got more and more. And then the more the bombings there were, and we occasionally would come across someone from Belfast and they'd tell us things. And it just got more personal and it got more and more personal. And eventually people wanted to do something about it. And it, it you know, people in back rooms of pubs suddenly started to say, well, what are we going to do? What are we going to do about it? All this chasing people up and down Holloway Road or Kilburn Eye Road, or you know, what's what's that achieving? What's you know, what's that doing? We need to do something. We need to make a statement. We need to say we're not having it. And uh, yeah, that's when it sort of it did spiral out of hand. Then definitely. So how did you click up with the Ulster Defence Association? What be what became very popular? It, it it seemed a lot of people were wearing badges, you know, pin badges that would was kind of showing support for either the, the UDA, the Ulster Defence Association, or the UVF, the Ulster Volunteer Force. Magazines were being sold quite extensively. And then it started to become collecting money for loyalist prisoners, which I used to do at Tottenham. I would go over to Tottenham, I'd sell badges, sell magazines, collect money for loyalist prisoners. Um, we then... We'd, we'd heard of, we, we, none of us wanted to join the Orange Order, particularly or the Apprentice Boys or anything like that. We had, we had no history. We were Cockneys. We were Londoners. You know, we didn't, we, we had no real connection with Scotland or, or, or Northern Ireland for that matter. But we knew there were, that they had parades, so we'd go along, we'd watch those, you know, support them, so to speak. And sometimes we know they'd be threatened. They'd, they'd be attacked. So we would also go along to act as a little bit of... Um, we weren't invited to. We just turned up, you know, to, to do a bit of security. We became aware of somebody in London who who was in the Orange Order. He was from Northern Ireland, and he allegedly was either a member of the UDA or he certainly was a conduit to to them. So we approached him. Basically, we approached this fella. He in turn, he he actually wasn't in charge in London. He wasn't in charge, but he knew who was. And, and, and it was a, a Scottish fella. So myself and a very good friend of mine went to meet this fella and was thoroughly unimpressed. 
thoroughly unimpressed, quite frankly. He just resembled a drunk to us. Mm. He smelt of vodka. Um, I made it clear to the fellow we'd spoke with, so I said, listen, if you think I'm putting my friends under the control of this drunk, forget it. It's, it's not happening. They wanted to meet him. We arranged to meet him. He came somewhere one night. We we met up. We could hear someone outside the door. My mate opened up the door. And there were two skinheads down outside the door, and uh, he said, "Who the fuck are you?" And I I they said, "I wear Joe's security." And he said, "We well, no fucking good out there, are you? You know, we're gonna be killing him, couldn't we? What are they, you know?" So we kind of we thought, "Oh, and this is a bit of a two bob arrangement, isn't it?" You know, so um, we, we sort of made. I think we kind of realised at that time that, <laughs> you know. We, we we need to kind of take over this, and, and my mates kind of made it clear that if we are, and if anyone's going to be in charge, Frank, it's going to be you. And it then became one of we could there were, obviously there was existing members, so we couldn't be disrespectful to them. But we we did kind of make it clear. Look, we we just don't think you're militant enough. We just don't really feel like you're you, you kind of warrant the name. Because you're not really, as far as we've, we've not heard you've done anything. Let's put it that way. So, uh, for want of a better way of putting it, yeah, there was a bit of a coup. Yeah. And once you seized control, how did you increase the militancy? Well, what we what we did to start off with, we had to play the game because we were we were in North London and there were people in South London. We basically said to them, "Look, be patient, because we will be coming to the fore. We will be we will be taking over, but." We've got to be careful. Don't forget, no one even knows us. So, so it, we were taking the liberty, if I'm honest. We were taking a bit of a liberty. And it was decided that they... The chap who was running it was stood down. So now it was a case of who was going to take over in London. The fellow who was second in command, he's 2IC, clearly, clearly wanted to be in charge. So we thought, you know what? Let him be in charge. Let him have the grief. We know what we we know what we're doing, but it did come to a head one night. Uh, a mate of ours came along, and he he, he, he had a, basically it was a catalogue of weapons that we had we could have access to through friends in the army. He opened it up to the man who's supposed to be in charge and said, "Listen, we can have this. We can get this." Good work, he said. Good work, he said. Yep, he said. Uh, Talk to Frank about it, and another mate went, "Hold on." You're supposed to be in charge. If we take a dive, you take a dive. And from that moment, we knew he he wasn't up to it. We could see he wanted to he wanted to ride the horse, you know. More to the point, he didn't want anybody else to ride. He'd, sh he'd shoot the horse before someone else could get on it, you know. So we, we kind of we suspected this for some. So we we'd said to other people, he'll trip himself up of it, and he'd done it that night. He'd done it that night. So no mobiles in those days. So. Five of us drove over to land before he lived, went in a phone box, phoned him up and said, look, we're in a pub across the road. He came in. I was sitting down with one of my fellas. Three others were standing. He walked in. He knew. He instinctively knew things weren't right. Sat down at the table and said, I'm standing down. I said, no, you're fucking not. You're being stood down, <laughs> you know. And fortunately, he, he, he didn't argue he didn't argue, which I'm pleased about because one of the fellas had a sawn-off shotgun on him. 
And I'm not suggesting for one minute that someone was going to kill him, but they'd have certainly crippled him to make a point, not only to him, to, the, to everybody else. We're the new kids on the block. And we and if we're going to arm him, what do you think we're going to do over other people? Fortunately, that didn't happen. That, 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 there, was no, there was no need for that. But that was the start of it. That was the, that was the real start of it, I'd say. So guns are coming from the military, did you say? <laughs> what I am going to say, <laughs> what I am going to say at this point, there, there, there is current organisations who are still seeking information from those days, shall we say. Okay. There's, there's, there's one particular group called the Historical Inquiries Team. So if... If, if a weapon from back then, because of new forensics to this day, can suddenly be traced back to a certain geographical area, that is equally going to potentially identify the people that was around in those days. And, so, there's, and there's no statute of limitations on that? Not on that, not on that side of things, no. no. So, so I'll answer the question in a sense that, <laughs> yes, we... we and I think this is becoming more known now as well. Yes, we we had very sympathetic people within, within, within the uh, armed forces and also information that they used to pass on to us. So what we can talk about then in terms of the weapons, um, weapons were being stockpiled for your own use. Originally, it was a case of to assist comrades over the water, you know. That, that was the original to start off with. That was a kind of to gain their trust. That was as if to say, well, look, you know, this is to show we are the real, the real deal, for want of a better way of putting it. Our biggest problem at the time was you've got to take into account there were other brigades all around the country, you know, Manchester, Liverpool, Leeds, Birmingham, Coventry. Um, and from their point of view, some of them were Ulstermen, some were Scotsmen, some, you know, Orange Order. They had a history. They might have had family connections. They certainly had historical connections. Who were we? We were just the upstarts from London. I get it now. I, I do get it now. But we, we were determined to make our mark. So I would go along to meetings in, in hotels. Each area would, would hold a meeting every month. And we'd go into a hotel and we'd talk about things. And I used to think, who's in the next, who do they know is in the next room? How do they know someone's not in the next room with a listening device? How comes this fella's in charge this week and he's got this fella with him who's a 2IC? He had a different 2IC with him last month. So who's this bloke? I don't know this bloke. You think I'm going to discuss business in front of a stranger I don't even know? And. I found it all a bit amateurish, to be honest. And I don't want to be disrespectful to people because I'm sure there were some, some sincere and dedicated people. But I, I, I wasn't convinced. And I thought, I'm not risking my liberty or my own people's liberty with these people. Indy and I just stopped, and I stopped going to the meetings. I just said, no, I'm not having this. We're having this. Um, and when we did come to prominence, so to speak, we did used to go around and challenge people and say, listen, you're just all talk. You know, you've got a social club, you're in there, you're drinking, you're showing off, 
you're giving the impression you're something, and we're not having it. You're being, you know, you're being stood down, and that caused a lot of friction. And I can remember going to a club one day, and me and a friend going to get back in the car, and they and they all pulled out the, they all pulled out the uh, the club, and uh, I won't say which one of us, but one of us had something at a base at a nine mil brand new automatic inside their coat, and pulled it out, and said, "Well, you know, keep coming forward if you want, so to speak." And again, that's I think that that kind of proved them we ain't we're not messing about here. We're not fucking about, you know. Did anyone pull guns on you? No, the only time ever the only time I thought someone was had pulled a gun on me, uh, again looking back in hindsight, someone had clearly had tried to cause division. And it turned out they they it, that they were working for the police afterwards, for the security forces. And this fella came to my, come all the way from Liverpool. And my front doorbell went, and I shoved an inner door as well. And I looked out the curtain, and I didn't know he'd come. He, he, he was coming to do me. I didn't know this. I knew there'd been a bit of bad blood. And I went to the front door, and he put his hand in his coat, and I was convinced he was ex-army. I, f- I think he'd got up to some mischief in the past. And he put his hand in the coat, and I thought, he's capable. He's no fool. And I slammed the front door, and I got to the second door, and I was going to dive on the floor. And I thought, no, 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 no. He'll know to shoot down. He'll know to shoot down on the floor. He'll suspect I'm going to do do that. So I stayed upright but went up against the wall. I put me back up against it and worked my way along the wall until I could get into a room. I then heard something smash. I could I could hear glass smashing. And I had a downstairs bar. I had a, a room downstairs. It was a big old Georgian house. And I used to have a bar downstairs. And I went downstairs and one of the panes of glass was broken. And on the floor was a wooden mallet. And I thought, you've come fucking 200 miles to come and do me with a mallet. I actually felt insulted. <laughs> and I thought, well, if you was going to use it, when I opened the door... Why didn't you smash me over the head with it and then tell me what was what? So my respect room had gone like from up there pretty much down there. So I was convinced he'd I was convinced he'd driven from Liverpool. I went round to a mates very quickly. We went somewhere. I picked some I said, I'm gonna fucking shoot him, I'm not having it. I'm gonna shoot him. And I knew like the back doubles to get to the start of the M1. So I thought I'd be able to cut him off. I didn't find out till afterwards. He'd come on train. He'd come on train. So I'd, I'd kind of endangered myself a bit because I'm, there I am driving around North London with this thing in the car, you know. But I, basically I put... He, he, he ran around for a few weeks after that. He was going to Manchester, Liverpool, shouting the odds. And I said, said to the fellas up there, I said, look, tell him I meet him in Belfast. Name a day, name a time and a place. We'll meet up and we'll see who's right and who's wrong. And he disappeared up the scene. He just the last third he'd gone he'd gone to um, Blackburn. But I did, as I say, I did suspect afterwards that we'd been set up. We'd clearly been set up against each other. Were, um, were there any other situations where you felt like your life was in danger? <laughs> I, I'm almost embarrassed to say this. Uh, I'd gone over. I'd gone over the belt last. I was due to go over to an inner council meeting. And I think it was a Wednesday. And I got, to, in them days, I used to fly from Heathrow. 
and I was stopped by Special Branch. And they took great pleasure in telling me that I was going to miss my flight. Well, of course, people were going to pick me up from the airport and say no mobiles in those days. So they thought they were smart. And in them days, you had British, British Midland and you had British Airways. Well, they had a gentleman's agreement that if someone missed a flight, you could go to the other desk and say, listen, I've been detained, blah, blah, blah. And fair play, I was on British Midland, but fair play to British Airways, I said I was going to a wedding. And I had a bag, and I said, oh, I've got cut glass in here like for the wedding present and all that. And fair play, they, they got me. But I was an hour behind there, wasn't I? So I strolled back past the, the special branch. It was say, well, fuck you. You know, I'm not as late as what you've tried to make me. But of course, when I got to the airport, the people had gone. I hadn't got off that flight, the original flight. So, well, I, I got a bit of time to kill. So it was like a hopper bus outside. So I went into the town. I'd get a cab now. I don't, I don't to this day, don't know why I never got a cab. So I get on this, I go into the town centre or the city centre and there's all buses. Walk up and I say to the driver, I didn't want to tell him exactly where I was going because you name a geographical area and you're basically giving yourself away. And uh, in those days, you could have mis been mis mistaken for a British soldier as well. So I said, oh, excuse me, mate, can you put me right for the Bally Ceiling Sports Centre? Oh, someone on the bus, he went, oh, I thought, well, he obviously don't like me, does he? So I went to the back of the bus. We're driving along, we got uh, what they call Crumlin Road. And when you get to the top of Crumlin Road, you've got a place called Ardoin, which is very Irish Republican. I needed to go just beyond that to a place called Alliance Avenue. And there was a social club there called the uh, Glenbrin Social Club which the army affectionately named the Jolly Roger. We get to the top of this road and the driver pulls, it's a single-decker bus, and he pulls over to the curb. And two fellas get on and he shouts down the bus, where's the fella with Bally Ceiling? And I thought, fuck, they're IRA, these two geezers, aren't they? Somehow he's got mess a message to these fellas that there's a British soldier on the bus and I got I remember getting up and I had my bag and I thought right I, I held the bag up in front of me I thought I've got to get down the other end of that bus as fucking quick as possible because if one of them puts his hand in the, in his pocket or in his coat I'm going to launch the bag at him just try and disorientate him maybe maybe get the gun up with him if not at least get off the bus so it's all right, mate. I know where I am now. See, Wheatfield Gardens is up there on the right-hand side. Got off. I fucking walked out these way. Constantly looking behind me. Walk in the club. They're all shocked because I'm not meant to be there. They don't think I'm coming. So all I'm interested in, I just want a pint. And I'm just thinking, fuck that. The art's going like that, you know. So I can't wait to tell them about my fantastic, you know, escape and evasion, you know, course that I've just taken. They're all killing themselves fucking laughing. I'm thinking... That's not nice. You know, it's a bit unsympathetic, isn't it? I'm thinking I'm about to get assassinated. They're all standing there laughing. I couldn't believe this. I've forgotten that the Ardoin bus garage was round the corner. He was only picking up two drivers. <laughs> I got slaughtered. I, I don't know how many times that few days I was there that I heard this story. I could tell when the story was being told because I could hear people sitting at the table laughing. I, I knew it was me. And the, the next time I went over, they called me up on the stage and they, they presented me with a bus driver's badge. But, I, but if I'm honest, 
I genuinely thought my days, my, my you know, my time on, on on this earth was up. I was double, double convinced. Uh, I'm in big trouble here. And I'll tell you what, I wasn't complacent after that. I definitely wasn't complacent after that. So there came a point when you started to think that the intelligence agencies had infiltrated you guys and they were following you, they were harassing you. What, um, how did the mood change then in what you were doing? Well, we met. So I was asked to go meet someone. We we we, we met someone, and this this fella convinced us that he could. That he had access to hand grenades. So we thought, blimey, you can do a lot of damage with an hand grenade, and he allegedly had dozens of them. Well, of course, the dilemma was you can only try you can only try an hand grenade at once, can't you? <laughs> once he's blown up, that's it. You can't use it again. So we wanted to be convinced that if it, if they came in a box that they were genuinely all, you know, active, you know. So this is where we got in touch with an old army friend of ours. And he went and had a look and he decided, yeah, the packaging looks right, everything looks right, the pins, it all looks right. And he, he, he kind of discussed the, t- the timing, you know, the timing of them and all that when you take the pin out and all this. So it all seemed kosher. So, But the deal was we wanted to see one. We wanted to see one, you know, active. So we knew someone who, who, who identified a quarry, a disused quarry, and there was a couple of like scrambler bikes. And we thought, well, right, okay, you can get away on them much quicker than if we if it's a motor. So we arranged to, to test one of these hand grenades, and all of a sudden, one of our fellas was sure he was being followed, and we thought, hold on. So someone someone went back and spoke to the fellow who was going to supply these these hand grenades. All of a sudden, he was really keen to sell them. And we thought, hold on, why has there been the sudden change of mood? And now all of a sudden he was saying, yeah, go on, you can't, you know, you can. And we thought, no, there's something not right here. And years and years later, when I was pulled by military intelligence, they mentioned hand grenades. So we were right. We were, we were right to be suspicious at that time. There was also an incident where we'd, we'd gone over the Beltwast and we'd discuss uh, the, the purchase of, um, it was 30, 39 mil Browning Automatics. And within a few days, we got pulled over that. We thought, well, where's that come from? Now, this was from the Inner Council. So we started to suspect that certain people were obviously, you know, in, in, in the pay of the, of the state. And we, we, we'd also probably given too much away. We shouldn't have said too much. We should have, we should have stayed local. We should have just kept things to ourselves. But we, we, we tried to test the water and say, listen, as far as we're concerned, MPs, British MPs, uh, you know, uh, are eligible to be shot, bombed, as was proved in, you know, the Grand Hotel in Brighton, you know, that nearly wiped out, the, the, you know, the, the present day, you know, the government. And and um, so, as far as we were concerned, we were saying, "Well, hold on. There's existing MPs, politicians. As far as we're concerned, they support the IRA. Why are you not sorting them out? Why are you not targeting them?" And I think they was horrified to think we was even thinking that way. But we, 
it's not a secret. It, it's not a secret. The people we were talking about at that time, and it was also it very much thought like it was going to be a change of government as well, and that Labour were going to get in, and that that could have drastically changed the status of Northern Ireland. So you had people like Key Livingstone, you had um, Jeremy Corbyn, uh, John McDonnell. You know, they were blatantly pro Irish Republicans. You know, and um, and clear. And they used to, you know, give assistance, shall we say, to, to people as far as we... Well, they, they clearly invited the IRA to the, to the House of Parliament, you know, or the House of Commons. So that was our mindset at the time, and I think that was our downfall. So, uh, so were Corbyn and Livingstone targeted for assassination yeah. then? Yeah, and McDonald. That's that's the bottom line. There's, there's, no other way, there's no other way of putting it. And I think once that was... And what happened then was a very prominent member of our organisation from a, from from Belfast would come over and liaise with us. And what would happen was, for six months, it would kind of be, go on, lads, well done, lads. You know, that's more like it, blah, blah, blah. So, so people would go out and do reconnaissance. People would, would follow these people from where they were, were holding um, their surgeries you know, back to where they lived and um, and build up that intelligence. And, and and the equipment was there to, you know, to carry it out. And then what would happen, he'd come back and he'd say, listen, we got a contact in the RUC, the Royal Ulster Conservatory. He's had, a, he's had a conversation from Special Branch on the mainland. Apparently they know there's a group of people who are targeting prominent politicians. So what we're going to do now we're going to be political. We're going to go political. You know, we're just going to challenge things politically. So people were on, like, people's adrenaline was going. People were on a high. And then all of a sudden, it was, and, and this happened too many times. This happened too many times. And, and eventually, he got, he got arrested. He got arrested because there was a very famous case of where, um, it was claimed this fellow was just a Catholic, an ordinary innocent Catholic, and he'd been killed. A fellow called Lachlan McGinn. And people said, no, 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 no. He's an IRA man. And years and years later, the IRA eventually did claim him. But at the time, they used it for propaganda reasons and said, no, no, he's an innocent Catholic. The UDA are going around killing innocent Catholics. But this fella was, was, was part of these montages, these pictures, that the intelligence services have passed on. We were getting them in England through our army contacts. And there were hundreds of them, literally hundreds of them. So he was identified, this fellow. He was targeted and he was killed. But to emphasise this, that he was legit, somebody decided to post, paste these posters up on the walls. So certain people got arrested. While this fellow was on remand, all of a sudden he stood down. He suddenly stood down and completely walked away. Completely walked away. And an arms cache was discovered. And I know certain people think that's how he walked. That that's how he walked because of this something. I don't know if that's true. I'm not going to cast that that, uh, that allegation against him. But that definitely made us sit up. That definitely made us say, "Oh, so we can't, we can't talk to people over there." 
because there's too much. And, and, and now the claim is, is that the security forces had so many people, you know, in their pay. It's embarrassing. It's actually embarrassing. In your book, you describe one of your guys, I think, that got assassinated at his house while he was getting questioned by the police. Yeah, a very good friend of mine, Cecil McKnight from Londonderry. Um, one morning the radio was on. We were just having a cup of tea in bed, me and my missus. And uh, she suddenly burst into tears. And she said, did you just do what they said on the radio? And I said, no. She said, your mate's just been killed. And I said, oh, oh. And uh, it turned out it was this Cecil. He was being interviewed by the police in his front room. And the IRA walked up to his front room window and shot him through the window. Now, the reason it hit my wife was because she'd been to a function up in Liverpool and had met his wife and they'd stayed in touch. So it suddenly became very personal to her. It suddenly became very personal to her. And uh, and equally became very personal to me as well. And that was the trouble. The more people you knew that got imprisoned or had got assassinated, it just got more and more personal. So people who want to find the rest of your story then the arrest and the incarceration that is in part one of loyalist paramilitary gunrunner which is at the link at the top of the description box below this video if you want the full story in frank's book like i said gadfly press now has published it and in the links it is available worldwide on amazon ebook paper book and audiobook there were a couple of stories that we did miss out from the prison years if we just go over the days before we finish i asked you about famous prisoners and you forgot to tell us that fred west the serial killer was at one of your prisons i, I can't believe i didn't actually mention it. i think it's because i never ever spoke to him I, I didn't actually interact with him what happened was he came in by that time i'd gone over onto the working wing and one day on the way over to the gym, I had passed the the cat a yard, you know, which is not much bigger than this. And um, I think I'd done it more just for old time's sake. I wanted to try and see if I could see through the corrugated iron and, and see who was on it. And it just happened to be him. And I couldn't believe how small he was. It was a really, you know, you couldn't believe this fella had, had done what he'd done. But um, I suppose, you know, if he drugged people and, and whatever. So, yeah, so I only saw him. I only saw him. But, um, which is probably just as well, because I certainly wouldn't have wanted to mix with him. And it was quite strange because in the in one of the newspapers, not long afterwards, they were saying he had a television in his cell and it, rubbish, total, total rubbish, you know. But yeah, I did forget to, I did forget to mention him. And there was a situation with a prison guard with a shamrock tattoo on his forearm. Told yeah. your wife that she had better hope that you didn't get bail because yeah. if you did, you were going to get shot in the yeah. head. Yeah, this was this that she conveyed that to me on the. Um, I think this was the first visit was when that was behind the screen. I was still behind. I hadn't, I hadn't got open visits with her yet, and I could see she was distraught. I could see she was upset. She was with her sister. I take it to account these two had never even been in a police station before. Never mind a prison. This was all totally new to them. And as they approached the the admin area to the prison, it's their first visit, and uh, there was a, a, a big fella standing there, big uh, screw standing there, and he had a, a white 
shirt on, you know, short sleeve shirt. And on his forearm, he had a big shamrock. And he turned around and said, which one of you is Paul Tonari's um, wife? And she said, I am. What, you know, why is that? Thinking he was going to be helpful in some way. And he turned around and said, you're not if he doesn't get bail, because if he does, he's going to get a bullet in the head. Now, I couldn't believe that someone that was working with, the, you know, the Crown, so to speak, and whose job was to look after prisoners, you know, had a responsibility. And I was fuming. I was absolutely fuming. And on one of the occasions, I had to go to court, because every 28 days you had to be re-remanded. So you had to go to the court. And because you was cut, you was you was double cuffed. And of course, it was Sod's lawyer. Who, who did I land up being chained to? This fella. Well, you. I just wanted a nut him. I just wanted to stick the nut on him, you know. But you thought, well, hold on, you're in enough trouble as it is, you know. Don't. And I knew I wasn't going to get. Well, certainly wasn't going to get battle anyone. I thought, but I certainly don't get another charge on top of it for assaulting a prison officer. That's not. That's not going to be clever, especially when you're in there and you're at their mercy. So, uh, no, I didn't do that. So, if you've enjoyed this podcast, please let us know in the comments what you felt about it. Also, in the description box are all the links to Frank's stuff, including a Facebook page he has recently set up, kind of a group. So, Frank, appreciate you coming back on, man. We know what's coming, fellas, don't we? <laughs> We're going to rub, rub our bald heads together. Oh, oh, <laughs> Some kind of mating thing you're doing here, rutting, whatever they call it. Rutting. Yeah, oh, God. 